turn in your Bibles again to Luke chapter 2. If you're not already there, you can turn there. Uh, Luke chapter 2. Um, this is, of course, the most famous Christmas passage. And I, I want to walk through uh, some things that we can kind of learn from the first couple of verses of this chapter. Uh, but before we do that, I want to ask you a question. And that question is uh, it's kind of geared towards you, but also kind of geared towards your childhood you, if I can say that, to think back when you were a small kid and you were, had that, uh, that uh, um, common question asked to you, which is, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I remember uh, uh, I was asked that a lot. I was a pastor's kid, so everyone thought that, you know, like, oh, you're going to be a pastor. And for a while, my answer was, no, I'm going to be a cowboy. <laughs> Uh, believe it or not, it, it you may not it may be surprising to you or not, but I used to live in cowboy boots so much so that I wore out the soles. Uh, that was me when I was a little kid. I was playing cowboy. I was pretending to be John Wayne out in the front yard. That was that was who I was. <laughs> uh, so I answered that question always with cowboy. But most kids, you know, they answer with you know doctor or police officer, or they want to be Michael Jordan, or wh- they want to be Tom Brady, or they want to be Superman or something. They they answer that question a lot. Um, but there's another kind of popular answer that I think about a lot, and that's astronaut. A lot, maybe some kids, or maybe that was more popular a couple decades ago. But um, this, there's something about space and space travel that really just excites us. That idea of exploring unknown worlds and going to these uh, unknown places where we can kind of learn uh, about our universe, and it always just kind of captures our attention. And I bring that up because. There, I recently stumbled across one of the most um, just fascinating testimonies for Jesus Christ, and it came from an astronaut. Uh, it came from Colonel James Irwin. Uh, he was actually a NASA pilot for uh, Apollo 15. He was the one who landed the lunar module on the moon uh, for Apollo 15, which was NASA's fourth moon landing. And he, Colonel James Irwin, became the eighth man to walk on the moon. Uh, he was a very, very well-known pilot. He actually he became one of the youngest, though NASA pilots to pass away. He died in 1991. Um, but it, before he died, and but after his retirement from NASA, he became a very outspoken Christian. He became he went to a church, got saved, and he spent the rest of his life sort of just preaching, uh, speaking, going to places. And he actually wrote this book called More Than Earthlings. An Astronaut's Thoughts for Christ-Centered Living. I've been trying to track it down and get my hands on a copy because <laughs> I want to read it. Uh, but he is talking about uh, in this book about his uh, reflections on his career in NASA, the, the things that he did there, the amazing experiences he had as an astronaut flying into space and landing on the moon, which is crazy to think about it. And he also talks about his faith. In the midst of all of that, he talks about his faith in Jesus. And he says this statement, which has just kind of just baffled me lately, and it's this. He says, God walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. God walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. And this is not coming from me, a guy who's just been in his locality for his whole life. This is coming from a guy who was standing on the moon. The only thing between him and the earth was the dust of the moon under him and infinite space around him. And he is now testifying to the fact that that feat in and of itself is not as significant as Jesus coming to earth. 
What an amazing testimony. Yes, of course, the uh, idea and the notion that mankind has uh, crafted together technology to land on the moon. Technology, by the way, that back when they originally landed on the moon, they had all of these computers, and you have more powerful computers in the palm of your hand with your smartphone than they had when they landed on the moon, by the way. That's an amazing feat of technology, but it's even more marvelous than man leaving his footprints in the dust of the moon is the fact that the God of the universe would leave his footprints in the dust of the earth. That's, it's an incredible truth. It's an incredibly humbling truth. Because mankind in general, man, we like to think a lot of ourselves. We like to think we have a lot of control. Which is why we put so much emphasis in, in you know, space travel that we have somehow conquered the universe somehow because we have telescopes that can see in deep space or something. He likes to boast in his accomplishments. It, it, another thing that kind of just makes me chuckle, you know there's a verse that says that God looks down at kings, I think it's in Psalms, he looks down at kings and he laughs because they think they have so much power. And I think he does that every single time. <laughs> uh, we like to think we can control the, the earth's weather by something that we can do. I think that's funny because we think that we can control that. But we like to think a lot more of ourselves than we really are. We put a lot of emphasis in what we can accomplish, what we can do with our strength and our ingenuity. And I think that's exactly why we have Christmas. (laughs) We have Christmas to remind us that we aren't the saviors. We are the ones who get saved. (laughs) We're not the heroes. We are the people who are in distress that need rescuing. (laughs) We are the people that need to be saved. Christmas is a reminder that we could never, ever save ourselves. As much as we might try, as much as we might uh, put stock into our ability to save ourselves, Christmas reminds us that we can't, and we would never be able to in a million lifetimes. Because that's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus had to come to our earth, to be our Savior. And that's where we get to Luke chapter 2. I want to look at two quick truths in this chapter. Two quick truths about this idea of the Messiah in a manger. You know, this, of course, I'm sure you're very familiar with Luke chapter 2. You may think of, you know, Linus reading it from Charlie Brown's Christmas, and he reads through all those verses. Maybe you think of that, and you think of all the happy things there. And, of course, this is an incredible passage, but I want to try and point out two quick things. In the first seven verses, I want to point out the lesson about Jesus' unsightly birth. Let's read verses 1 through 7 quickly. Uh, The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished, that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger." Because there was no room for them in the inn. Very quickly, I want you to just look at verses 1 through 5. And just note 
how many proper nouns there are. Because look at all the things that Luke is mentioning. He mentions all these names, all these places, all these historical references. And it seems just like you're inundated as soon as you get into this chapter with this place and this person and this time. And it kind of can seem confusing. These, always, these first couple of verses have always kind of seemed just kind of extra. But Luke is doing something very important. He's, uh, he's driving home uh, the fact that this is a historical event. <laughs> It was during this time, during this political season, during this socio-economic time in the Roman government, in the Israeli world, and this is what happens. Luke, of course, is the writer of this gospel. He also wrote the, the book of Acts. He was the companion with the Apostle Paul throughout all of, or most of his missionary journeys. Luke, of course, was a physician. He was a doctor, but he was also a historian. He was a very accurate and detailed writer. So what he's doing here isn't necessarily just accidental or just happenstance. He's being very deliberate with, this is the season when Jesus would come into our world. He's saying, this is what's going on, and this is where it's happening geographically. So, uh, quickly, we have this guy Caesar, and he calls for this kingdom-wide census. That's what what it means when it says that all the world, that's all the Roman world, which was basically half the world at this time, uh, all the Roman world should be taxed. They would let a, a census. Everyone would go back to their ancestors' hometowns. So that's why it says in verse 4 that Joseph went back to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. And they would be registered there, and then they would be taxed there. So it was all about money, really, for Caesar Augustus. Um, but it's not by accident Again, that this happened during this time. Because what was... I love that you probably think about Caesar, right? The Caesar Augustus guy. He's issuing this decree for his purposes. But God was letting him issue this decree because God wanted it to happen. Why? So that Joseph would go to Bethlehem. So that all of the things would be fulfilled. All of the things would be uh, in place for his son's birth. Yes, this decree was issued by Caesar. It was, uh, it was given out by this guy, August, Caesar Augustus. But this decree was orchestrated by God. God arranged for this to happen. He uh, issued it and allowed it to happen in this way, in, in this time. Because God's hand is always in every single facet of our history. He is always in every single part of it. And that's why verse 6 uh, look at that again, where Luke says, And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. This isn't like just a throwaway verse or just an extra description of what's going on. This is a very important verse. Because it's showing that God is sovereign, even in this moment in time, even in this movement of this little peasant couple of Joseph and Mary going back to Bethlehem, and that at the exact moment at when the days were accomplished, that she would deliver this son. God's hand is over this part of their lives. He's over every part of our lives. Our history, you can look back on your history too, It's a testimony to God's patience with us and God's power in us. And I think that's what's going on here. 
Because God the Father is permitting all of these events to happen in this specific way, in this specific time, so that all of these promises would be fulfilled. I'm just going to read a verse. It's up there on your screen. Micah 5.2. Because Micah 5.2 is an important verse in the prophecy of Jesus Christ. And it says this, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth. Unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. That's a promise of Jesus being born in this small little city, Bethlehem, the city of David. And you see, it wasn't by accident that this couple was there. It says, the days were accomplished. The time had come. You think about that. It was God's right time. That second verse that's up there, Galatians 4 Verse 4 is also really important because Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of, son, of sons. That first phrase, when the fullness of time was come. It's similar to our phrase here where it says, The days were accomplished. It, it wasn't Mary's right time. It wasn't necessarily Joseph's right time. It was God's right time. It was God's timing that this should happen in this way, that everything should work out according to how he would desire it. Because I've been thinking about this lately, because that verse in Galatians has really been striking me. And coupled with this account, because of of the season that we're in, think about this moment in time for Mary. Right? She's a young virgin Jewish girl. She's engaged to be married. Her life seems to be going in a good direction. Because she's engaged, she won't have to worry about uh, money or anything like that. She's en- Yes, the, this guy that she's engaged to is a carpenter, but he can probably make a living. And uh, But suddenly she finds herself pregnant. And yes, she knew who it was, but imagine you're in the company of a girl who is saying that she got miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. How, how far are you believing that? How far are you going where, yeah, okay, right. I believe you, Mary. And you give a side eye to Mary and Joseph. This is, and it's not just that she's miraculously pregnant, is that she believes that she's carrying, as it says in Luke chapter 1, the son of the Most High God. That an angel visited her. <laughs> Think about this too. It's been 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There's a 400 year gap in sort of a silence in the Word of God. There's been no goings forth. There's been no uh, inspiration of the Word. There's been silence spiritually. And now, after four centuries, you're saying that you've heard from God? Yeah, okay, Mary. I believe you. (laughs) Think about the slander that surrounded this young girl. The gossip that spread about her (laughs) in this small little town of Nazareth. And now they're going to Bethlehem. And, oh, I wonder why they're doing that. As she tried to explain this pregnancy. You think this was Mary's right time? Joseph could have done pretty much anything he wanted with her if she found out that she, when he found out that she was pregnant. You know, in this time, uh, women didn't have the kind of rights that they deserved. 
It was a different culture. It was a different time. He could have, uh, he could have just separated from her. But he didn't. I don't think this was Mary's right time. <laughs> but this was God's right time. This was God's timing. This was God's perfect time when the days were accomplished that he would uh, make everything come to fruition. It was God's perfect timing. Because right here, right in these verses, when this uh, miracle happens, the miraculous conception, that is the first sort of sign that Satan's going to be defeated. Remember, uh, Genesis 3.15, that famous verse at the end of the, of the, 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 the chapter where we have the fall of Adam and Eve, and God gives the promise to Eve. He says in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That verse right there is what's being fulfilled right here. Back in Genesis, he was promising that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. That's what's happening with this little, tiny, little infant in this womb. It's the first movement in God's mission to crush the serpent's head. To cancel sin forever. It's happening right here in this small little town in this little insignificant life of this virgin girl named Mary. God was doing a cosmic, mighty work in this small little life. I think that's an amazing truth. But look at verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son back in Luke 2 and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Because there was no room for them in the inn. What? Also, not, not is it just that, she, it, it, that, that God was starting his mission with a virgin birth. He was starting it with a virgin birth in a small little podunk stall in a small little town called Bethlehem. It's, again, it's that unsightly birth of Jesus that kind of shocks us. It should shock, shock us. Because Jesus' crib wasn't this nice thing that we get at Ikea. It was a feeding trough. (laughs) That's what a manger was. This Messiah, he didn't arrive in this, you know, fancy royal birthing room with all these awesome feats and, and awesome amenities. He came into a world that was filled with the sights and smells of animal life. (laughs) So manure and urine, (laughs) that was all around him. It was in their nostrils as they were breathing the air of this little uh, stall. They were welcoming into the world the Messiah. Jesus' royal family was pretty much anything but royal. They were peasants. They were poor. All they could afford was this small little stall. And it's not just that Jesus was born where these beasts were dwelling It's that he was placed where beasts feed after he was born. He was placed where animals of all kinds come and have their meals. So it has all of the saliva of thousands and countless animals before him. That's where Jesus was born. That's where Jesus, the king of nations, the lord of the universe, he was put in a manger, in a feeding trough. Everything about this birth was unsightly. It was unseemly. It was unattractive. 
But that leads us to the second lesson I want to point out. And that's because it's not just his birth that was kind of unsightly. I want to point out number two, a lesson about Jesus' unsavory broadcasters. Because look at verse 8. I'm going to read from verse 8 down to verse 17. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass... As the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. These these are the pinnacle verses of this Christmas account, maybe. But I think it's incredible that we have this first gospel sermon is given to these sorts of people, to shepherds. They're the first ones that hear about the Savior in the whole world at this point. And remove sort of, you know, like our precious moments, little figurine image of shepherds for a minute. Just kind of cancel that out of your head. And think about shepherds in a new way because these guys weren't like people you would want to be around. Shepherds in this day, in the first century, they were known as drifters. They were known as sort of nomads. They were homeless. Their friends were their livestock where they they were herding. (laughs) So they smelled bad. They didn't really have much uh, in the way of property. And they were generally regarded as thieves and lowlifes. People that you wouldn't want to be around. They were disrespected because of their social status. They were distrusted because of their lifestyles. And they were regarded as unclean. You wouldn't want to hang around them. You wouldn't want to fellowship with them or associate yourselves with shepherds. Like back at our earlier question, no little kid is raising their hand saying, ooh, ooh, I want to be a shepherd. That wasn't happening. This was something that you got into to get by with life and just make it. And by that sort of logic, this was the last sort of people you would want to tell about your birth. You know, the, the, cool, the funny thing about Facebook nowadays and this social media generation are gender reveal parties. You know, these elaborate things where they have like balloons filled with confetti and then we pop it and yay, it's a boy or a girl. And they're really fun, they're exciting, or they cut open the cake and M&Ms fall out and ooh, it, it tells you what kind of kid you're having. But I think that sort of elaborate nature is not just because we have social media. It's just more prevalent now. But they did that sort of thing in the first century too. Whenever you, you, know, you were a high and well-to-do family and you were welcoming a son and, or you welcomed a son into the world, you would broadcast that to everyone that you knew. 
And the wealthier that you were, the more people would know. And the, more, the higher your social status, the more prestigious the people that you would tell. So if I was a king, I would make sure to tell all the other kings, look, I just got an heir to my throne, so don't try and think about taking it. Or if I was a ruler, a noble person, I would make sure all the other noblemen would know that, look, I just had a son. So that's sort of the, the construct to think about with Jesus' birth. This tells you the socioeconomic status of his parents. <laughs> the first people that knew weren't kings. It wasn't a dignitary from this region or that region. It was shepherds in a field nearby. These were the first people that knew that Jesus had come into the world. And I think this is sort of the most provocative picture of Jesus' ministry. We used that word last week, unexpected. Again, this is an unexpected piece of ministry life in the life of Jesus. Because the least likely group imaginable is the first group that gets this gospel message. They're the first ones. They become the first evangelists. You see that? Look at um, verse 17. And when they had seen it, when they had seen this baby lying in a manger, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. I would love to know what they were spreading, what, what their message was. I would love to know that, what they were saying. But this shows Jesus' heart. This shows us God's heart. It shows a, a heart that's unafraid of our lowliness, that's unafraid of our sin, that's unafraid of our dirt, that's unafraid of our filth, that's unafraid of our shame. As it says in Philippians 2, where it says that he, uh, being, though he, he thought it not robbery with God to be equal with God, he became like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus comes for those who uh, are lowly. He comes for people like these shepherds. He comes for people like you and I, sinners. He makes these sinning uh, peasant shepherds into the first preachers of his good news. That's, that's, those are the first broadcasters of this birth. And what makes it so special and crucial that Jesus was laid in a manger is that very fact this, you see this manger, look at verse 12 again, Luke 2.12 where it says, And this shall be a sign unto you, this shall be a sign. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The sign wasn't, you will find this great beacon of light shining down on this manger and you'll know that this is Jesus. You won't find him with a crown, you won't find him with a scepter in his hand because he's the ruler. You won't find him with a sword because he's a violent warrior that's going to uh, crush all of his enemies. You will f this is the sign, that Jesus is lying in a feeding trough. And why is that so special? Think about these shepherds. If they were called to a throne, do you think they would show up? Do you think that they would show up with all the confidence? Let's see what this thing is about. They were called to a manger. They had no reason to fear a feeding trough. They had no reason to be afraid of showing up to a feeding trough. They could show up freely. They could show up boldly. They could show up confidently. And the same is for us. We have no reason to fear this Lord of glory. 
Because he is shown up in a manger. That's why it says in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, that we can go into that throne room of grace with boldness and cry out for grace and mercy in our time of need. Jesus, this is his birth. He was born on the bottom rung of a very, very low ladder. And on this uh, cold night in the small town of Bethlehem, in the small little feeding trough, that's where Jesus begins his mission of redemption. Not on a white stallion, and he's reclaiming the world through force, but as a little crying infant baby. He's saying, I am going to remake the world. The creator of the universe enters his creation as this little baby, and he lies in a manger so that no one would have to fear coming to him. No one would have to be afraid of this God. (laughs) Jesus' birth is a reminder that this God of creation and glory came to be in the company of beasts and sinners. (laughs) The one who sustains the stars in their space, in their spot, in their rotation, is the one who is now lying in a manger In the arms of this Virgin Mary. And the same good news that came to these shepherds is the same good news that comes to us. It's the good news that, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10, of the grace that comes to us. We kind of talked about this last week, but it's not that we have to get up to some certain point and work our way towards this grace. Grace comes to us. God comes to us in the form of a baby. It's the good news that this king was here. The king of all the world and of all the nations was here in the form of a crying little infant. The son of God is in a stall. The Messiah is in a manger. The Lord of all becomes the lowliest of all for you and for me. This is Jesus' birth. This is the Christmas story. This is what we are celebrating. This is what should captivate our attentions. Just the fact that this God of Christmas is not afraid to come down and to get his hands a little dirty, and yes, even get his hands a little bloody in order to save us. I'm thankful for that. Because again, as we mentioned at the beginning, we could never ever save ourselves. It was impossible. And that's why Jesus came. He came for the very worst sinners. That's why I love the promise in verse 11 where it says, um, or excuse me, verse 10, this good tidings of great joy, it's going to be for all people. Not just the good people. This is not Santa Claus where he rewards only the good people and he gives coal to the naughty people. This good news comes for everyone. It's good news, glad tidings for all people. Because everyone is open, has an open access to this good news. This is the God of Christmas. This God of creation who occupies our world. He occupies this ruined world, this sin infested world. For the sole purpose of redemption. To remake it, as it says in Revelation. That he's coming to make all things new. And it starts right here. Think about that, that God's mission of renewal, of renewal in not just our world, but renewal in our known universe, starts right here in a little feeding trough in a small city called Bethlehem. In the company of animals and shepherds, 
in a peasant family. That's where Jesus begins his mission. (laughs) Of salvation, of renewal, of redemption. This first movement was right here. (laughs) And it's a movement that would carry Jesus all the way to the cross. Because yes, even as we are celebrating this Christmas season with our little baby Jesuses and cradles, don't separate it from the cross. Because that's where Jesus was going. And that's why he is coming. For salvation. The same little infant baby that we put there is the same man who would be nailed and beaten and tortured and bruised and bloodied all for you and all for me and all for the sins of the world. He would hang there and die there. That's that's the Messiah. He comes in an unnoticed way, in an, uh, an unattractive way, and it makes it to where everyone is free to come to him. Free to believe in him. Because he has an unsightly birth. He has unsavory people that are announcing that birth. And he says, that's why I've come. As we saw last week, I've come for those who are sick. I've come for those who know that they need a physician. Not those who think they are whole. I've come to those who are sick with sin. Because I have come for sinners. (laughs) And like we said last week, because sinners are all that there are. (laughs) That's why he is here. That's why he's here as a baby and that's why he is here as a man dying for us. And that's why we are here to remember the fact that this season, this Christmas season, and every Christmas season, and every month of the calendar year, not just now, in this time called, uh, that some people call Advent, when we're thinking about Jesus' birth, all year round, we're thinking about the fact that Jesus came down The God of all glory came down as a little infant baby for us to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we should have died so that we could have the life that he purchased for us by his blood. This is Christmas. This is the good news, the glad tidings that are for all people. Let's pray.